So I'd like to begin this talk by um, like some inspiration, paying homage to the the Buddha, the awakened one, the awakened possibility within all beings. Namo tasa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa. The awakened heart and mind. Quite wonderful beyond belief. So tonight I want to offer some ta- a talk and talk a little bit about our day of practice and uh, an introduction to the 32 parts of the body. But first and foremost, and I feel actually very um, emotional that I uh, want to dedicate this talk and for me, for this retreat, to my dear beloved friend Rachel Merrimont, who died just a couple of weeks ago. She was signed up to come to this retreat. And Rachel and I go back maybe 10, 12 years. And when I first uh, met her, she was going through very difficult times of uh, her own breast cancer a brother that had committed suicide, and a mother that had recently died. And Rachel really took so sincerely to the practice of mindfulness. And through the years, she attended many mindfulness-based stress reduction program, eventually even doing a, a teacher training, and coming and taking many meditation retreats. She was signed up to go to this one. And about three weeks ago, we had lunch, and she said, Bob, I'm not going to be able to go. Her cancer had come back and uh, went the vengeance. She lived with such uh, a tender, precious heart. And she'd had some challenging times in her life. And I just remember her telling me over lunch some weeks ago of how much that she loved her life now and that she wanted to live. So, to Rachel, my beloved sister, Dharma sister. Mary Jane Block, she says, this is a woman that also has breast cancer. Four-line poem. Pretty powerful. Everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would. Except your life. Everything takes longer, longer than you think it should or thought it would except your life. Crowfoot, uh, Blackfoot Native American chief, he says, what is life? It's This was his last words before he died. He said, it's like a flash of a firefly in the night. It is like the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. 
It's like a little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. So this retreat has a lot of... uh, this really touches my heart and honoring my dear friend. And of course, in honoring my dear friend, to really honor her fully, I, I feel like that I need to honor, honor this practice that she loved and of course I love so deeply. And This practice is a powerful practice. Uh, I, I was very touched last night when people were going around the circle sharing just even like a sentence or so, but it was like very, like a homeopath, it was a strong sentence, what brings me here, getting in touch with my body and other just sense of wanting to connect with this body, this preciousness of life. And yeah, Rachel, she really shared deeply about this preciousness and fragility What brought me to this practice many years ago, quite honestly, was my own realization of death. And it's very funny to say that um, my first realization of death was when I was four years old. And I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car in Brighton, and we were heading to Brookline in Massachusetts, going down Corey Hill Road. I remember the road. I remember the view. It's a very beautiful view. And we were going over to my grandmother's house, my nana's. And I was riding in the back seat, and I don't know why I thought about this. I have no idea if my parents were talking about death or anything. But all of a sudden I had this realization, undeniably, that I and everyone will die, and that it could happen at any moment. That was a pretty earth-shattering discovery at the age of four. That really changed the course of my life. And I remember asking my mom and dad about this, and they said very lovingly to me, don't worry, Bobby. You won't die for a long, long, long time. And actually, at the age of four, I actually really appreciated their kindness extending out to me, but that four-year-old had a lot of wisdom because he also understood that he was not being told the truth. (laughs) Because, you know, what I knew is what I knew. It could come at any time. And I, I don't hold my parents any grudges about that. I, you know, as a parent now myself, and it's really powerful when your young child begins to ask you about death. My young son, Bodhi, um, sometimes like he wouldn't be able to sleep at night. He's thinking about his own death. And I would hold him and be with him, sit with him. And I knew that there was nothing that I could say to make it better other than to be with him, to breathe with him, to acknowledge the mystery with him. And somehow just by me just lying with him and being with him and just just saying we can just breathe together and be with this mystery and, and then this one day he said, all right, this will be good and then I, I want to have a happy thought and then I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> this was his own discovery. 
So what I knew is what I knew at the age of four, that this could happen at any time. And unfortunately to say, by the time I was nine, I lost a younger brother who I shared a room with, died of an illness. My best friend, who I played with every day, Ellen Chabot, she lived across the street. She went into a diabetic coma and she died one night. And my grandpa, who lived downstairs, I considered to be one of my first spiritual teachers. And so this left me in a state of great um, grief and confusion, despair. I was very lost, and this also coincided with the Beatles growing their hair long and Bob Dylan singing, The Times Are Changing. And I was very, very lost. And eventually I, I graduated high school, miraculously. And friends went away to college, and all of a sudden I hadn't even been thinking about college. I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. And I was going into downhill skiing, and I said, well, I'd love to go to college up in northern Vermont. It's good skiing there. Fortunately, luckily got my way to an undergraduate school in northeastern Vermont in the Northeast Kingdom. Enjoyed the skiing and flunked out in my sophomore year. (laughs) And um, my mom said, why don't you take a look in the course catalog, see if there's anything that actually really interests you, because I was readmitted back on warning. And so I looked at the course catalog, and reading and writing and arithmetic definitely was not something I was interested in at all. But there was this class that said, the wisdom of the East, Eastern philosophy. And it's funny because it kind of perked my interest. And although I didn't know anything about Eastern philosophy, what I did know about from my own direct experience was how much I loved Chinese food. (laughs) Growing up in a kosher home in Boston, we would go out to the Chinese restaurants, and I loved Chinese food. And I loved the artwork in the Chinese restaurants. And even the waiters and the waitresses, they had kind of a different vibe than Denny's or Howard Johnson's. (laughs) There was something there that really lured me. I I, I know it's funny to say this, but it's it's really true. It's really true. And um, so I said, what the heck, I'll take this class. So I went into the class. And my professor, this was the mid-70s, was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I had never seen a professor like this in my entire life. Most of the professors I had were suit jacket and ties, and they're pretty tight. And this guy's sitting in a lotus position, and he starts talking, and, you know, like, what? what's this guy talking about? And I began to listen. And as time went on, what he had to say really interested me. I had never met a person like this in my entire life. Because this person was kind of like embodied in what he was talking about. And I, and I felt, I, I want to know what this guy knows. I want to know what he knows. Well, he encouraged us to start to read the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, The Way of Life. And I started reading the Tao and I couldn't believe it. Like, oh. 
I couldn't believe that somebody thought about life and expressed about life in this way and it was like coming home to me. And um, eventually I came across one of the poems, one of the epigrams. And it said that there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And when I read that, I began to realize how lost I had been, how confused I had been, and that if I wanted to know anything, I needed to start looking in here. And that was a radical notion. I had not, pardon me, not even a clue that that was something that one could do. I was pretty lost. And, and that really began my meditative journey that I am forever immensely and deeply grateful for. That is now many years ago that I've been on this journey. Jane Kenyon, she writes, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and I planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. One day, I know it will be otherwise. The Dharma often invites us to reflect upon that these powerful remembrances that I am of the nature to grow old. And I cannot escape from aging. You know, consider this. There's a, an, an incredible spark that happened on your conception. Where the sperm and the egg met. And there was an explosion. And those cells began to subdivide and multiply. And here we are. But that moment of that conception began the irreversible process of aging. That none of us can escape from. This is a powerful recollection. I am of the nature to get ill. I cannot escape from illness. No doubt I can meditate. I can take stress reduction classes. I can eat healthy food and exercise. I can have good interpersonal relationships. And no doubt we can do a lot to help promote our health and well-being, but in the end, we cannot avoid getting ill. And of course, in the end, we cannot avoid being separated from those that we care about. And of course, we cannot separate ourselves or we cannot escape our own deaths. These are very powerful remembrances. And so I'm touched, uh, you know, there's lots of different reasons that brings us here to this retreat. For me, it was this existential crisis. What is this life? For others, it's dealing with relationships, with challenges of living, with 
so many different reasons that brings us here wanting to get more in touch with this body that perhaps I've disowned and not in touch with. I find that these recollections on transience and permanence, although it might not be a very popular subject, can be actually very helpful for me to reflect upon this preciousness of this life. I also want to just acknowledge that, congratulations, you've completed your first day of practice here. <laughs> it, it's a lot. You know, spirit rock, you look at it, pastoral surroundings, and little turkeys coming around, and deer playing in the meadows. But inside here, sitting here, it ain't, it ain't so pastoral, <laughs> if you didn't notice. When I lived in the monastery, and I, I lived in a Buddhist monastery for eight and a half years, and another name of the monastery, sometimes we would call it the shit accelerator. <laughs> because it's like, stuff is coming up. It looks nice, but if we sit with ourselves, stuff's coming up. Sometimes we talk about the beginning of the retreat, it's like entering into the swamp. And it's swamp-like. I'm tired and my head hurts and I'm hungry and... Oh. Anybody have kind of a rough day today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to normalize that. This is very normal. It's actually so normal that actually meditation texts talk about this. If you meditate, you will have hindrances that will arise or challenges. You'll be filled with wanting. You'll be filled with not wanting. You'll be filled with restlessness, sloth and torpor, sleepiness, doubt. So if you've been visited by these and continue to intermittently get visited by them, may you know this is absolutely normal. And it's really a reflection of your courage and your heartfulness and willing to sit and to be with yourselves and to be with what's here. And so I really want to help normalize, particularly those of us that are very new to practice. And like, you know, I thought meditation is about, you know, feeling pretty copacetic, but it's like, you know, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm scared, I'm tired, I'm body's in pain. So I want to just normalize this. And even for those of us that have been sitting for many years, we go through it too. Yes. So I think it's important to name this. Actually, I love uh, Bhante Gunaratana. This is an honest experience of meditation. He goes, somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. That your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels and it's barreling down the hill utterly out of control and hopeless. <laughs> no problem, he says. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, but perhaps we just haven't noticed. So Bhante Gunaratana talks about like to sit with ourselves. I love he uses this word, he says, it takes gumption. 
I like that word, gumption. It takes a certain type of gumption to, to sit with ourselves. It's not easy. To me, sometimes this is some of the most difficult work of all, the work on ourselves. And yet I also would say that this is some of the most noblest of work. Actually, I think there's some reference in the Buddhist literature about like being able to um, tame your own mind is greater than taming a thousand soldiers in battle. Maybe more than a thousand. Not easy. So it takes a certain type of gumption and willingness to sit with ourselves. And I really bow to all of you and your willingness and vulnerability and courage to sit and to be with ourselves. It's not easy. And we understand that. And we really honor you and acknowledge this. So if you've been visited by sense desires, wanting mind, when these arise, notice that it's there. Notice the state and the quality of the mind and the body when one's in wanting. I remember many years ago eating some tofuti ice cream. I love tofuti ice cream. And I was eating this dish of ice cream and it was going very well. Till all of a sudden I noticed there was one more bite left. (laughs) And then all of this kind of sadness arose and fear and what am I going to do and you know I could actually just get another one but it was very interesting just to watch the nature of my mind and this grief that was arising over this pleasure that was literally dissolving in my uh, experience and how much that the sense of uh, my body and mind in that place of wanting how riled I was so learning to sit with ourselves, seeing that this state of wanting, grasping, clinging, it comes, it goes. Being able to own it, to name it, to acknowledge it is a very important part of our practice. And this is often what we'll recommend is to acknowledge, to name, to validate. Oh, here's wanting mind. The same with anger and aversion. It's actually, if we hold it in another light, it's clearly showing us where we're stuck, where we're holding back. We can learn from it. Restlessness, agitation, worry, it's like a pacing tiger. It's a lot of energy, but it's not yet harnessed in a way that is unified. So we can begin to recognize here's restless energy. Perhaps it's skillful now for me to walk very briskly with attention and awareness, working with the energies of restlessness. Sloth and torpor, sleepiness. Often talk about three different reasons. One is that we're tired. Hello, we've been working 24-7, 365, or maybe not quite that, but a lot. And it's only when we finally stop we put on the parking brake, we're here in this retreat, and it's like, OMG, I am tired. And for many of us, we are really exhausted, and we don't even know how exhausted we are until we stop. Definitely today, I was feeling tiredness. Another aspect, perhaps, of uh, the sleepiness is resistance. We don't want to feel or be present to what's there. So it's always, I think, important to you know, is there some truth to this? There's something that I'm not wanting to feel right now. 
lastly, sometimes there's a sense of imbalance, and, and we have to work with balancing out our energies. Now, the challenge, of course, is doubt. Will this meditation really do anything for me? (laughs) What is this stuff? Doubt arises as well, and it's important when that arises to note, oh, here's doubt. The antidote, one of the antidotes, very powerful antidote, is mindfulness, to know it, to see it. I actually, I was going to bring this with me today, but I, I mean this retreat, but I forgot. I actually have a, um, a little Buddha in this uh, little bowl, clear bowl, and you shake it up, and then all the, it's like the Frosty the snow, Snowman type guy, <laughs> except I got a Buddha in there. And... I love the image of Frosty, the metaphor. is like a meditator from way back. And so when we first begin to meditate, everything just... It's like the thing's shaking, but sitting still, good old Frosty. Gradually, things get clear. And so we're in this process of sitting still. And the mind and everything is going... There's doubt, there's sense desire, there's version, there's this, there's that... And so when these are rising, we're learning to cultivate the qualities of acknowledgement, naming what's present. And we'll discover as we meet experience without resistance, acknowledging things as they are, perhaps there may be a settling. We'll see about that. Our willingness to sit and to be with ourselves. Dana Falls, she writes in a poem called Allow that I just love. She says, there's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt or try to contain a tornado. Dam a stream and it'll create a new channel. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Very beautiful wisdom there. So I wanted to offer just naming some of the challenges that are arising and I trust many more the top 40, top 100. And can we bring this spirit of acknowledging, bringing awareness to validate, to acknowledge what's present? And that sense of naming can in many ways begin to help lose some of its power once it is seen and known. 
It's even a very beautiful story, and I'm just going to do a very short piece of it, of this vigil of when Siddhartha Gautama was meditating under the Bodhi tree to awaken, to become a Buddha. And it is said that uh, this being called Mara, the tempter, was trying to tempt him, like, who are you to become awakened? And it set upon showers of like malevolent forces towards him to try to scare him. And it's almost as if, like, as if arrows were coming towards him and the Buddha would just open his eyes and look at Mara and say, I see you, Mara. And in the moment, the metaphor is that all the arrows turned into lotus blossoms. And there's other images of seduction and trying to tempt the Buddha and all these different forces that Mara was coming on to try to distract him from awakening. And every time that happened, the Buddha would just open up his eyes and say, I see you, Mara. It's a very beautiful, powerful metaphor. I see you, anger. I see you, sadness. I see you, fear. I see you, doubt. And I want to encourage you as we hold and work with the practice to to see that for yourself. See what Mara's coming to visit. Ah, I see you. I see that you're there. I acknowledge you. So every time that happened, when Mara was seen, Mara would like, kind of just go away. And the story goes that even after the Buddha fully awakened, Mara would come to visit the Buddha from time to time. And whenever Mara would come, the Buddha would say, oh, I see you, Mara. Would you like to have some tea? And then Mara would be like, ah, oh, and just kind of go, go away. <laughs> Mara can't exist when it's seen. Just like when you think about one candle, it's lit here, and it's illuminated, and all the darkness around it is dispelled. That is how powerful that candle is. The light illuminates, dispels the darkness. The awareness dispels the fear, dispels the anger that we use this awareness to acknowledge what's present, to name it, to acknowledge it. So, where does this awakening happen? Where does it happen? Buddha says, that within this fathom-long body, within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, is our world. Its origin, its cessation, its pathway to nibbana, to freedom, to peace. Within this fathom-long body. This body is the vehicle that we live inside of in our pathway to awaken. It doesn't happen outside of the body. It happens in this fathom-long body. So this retreat is dedicated, in many ways, to diving. I love what Will said earlier, deep-sea diving uh, into the body. It's a more contemporary poem by uh, Martha Elliott that says that your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse. Your body is your storehouse of all of your learnings and thoughts and experiences. Your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse. 
when we're disconnected from the body, we can identify ourselves with a character in James Joyce's book, The Dubliners. We often use this expression in mindfulness-based stress reduction because we work with a body-oriented practice called the body scan. So in The Dubliners, it talks about a character named Mr. Duffy who happened to live a short distance away from his body. I think we can relate to Mr. or Ms. Duffy at times living a short distance away from our bodies. So this practice of the 32 parts of the body meditation, which I consider to be the original body scan, is found in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So there's a grand invitation to dive into the body with awareness. Saraha writes that within my body are all the sacred places of the world and the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. The most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. I'm going to shift my position. I had a knee injury a while back skiing and I can only sit for so long. So I was um, introduced to the 32 parts of the body meditation in... um, 1980, by a Burmese forest meditation master. His name was Tungpulu Kabaye Siero. And um, I was in my very early 20s. I had become a monk temporarily. In the Burmese tradition, you don't have to be a monk for life. But at that point, I was a monk with a shaved head and robes and had a begging bowl. This was in Burma, now known as Myanmar. And he had us chanting these body prayers, like, what the heck is this? (laughs) This is the strangest, weirdest practice I could ever imagine, and I loved it. (laughs) You know, being, as you know, a little bit of my history with with a lot of death early on, I was very compelled to, like, when are we going to the cemetery? That was, like, you know, the monk's thing to do, go in the middle of the night to the cemetery and meditate and do body parts and... So anyways, I was really gung-ho at the time. Tunku what he said about the 32 parts of the body meditation was that, this was his words, that this is the most eminent among all of the foundations of mindfulness. This meditation is unlike any other kind of meditation, I'll agree. It is only brought to light and taught in the times when the Buddhas arise. So I was introduced to this meditation many years ago and then I got involved in uh, after leaving the monastery which is another story that I'll spare you with for now I got very interested in mindfulness based stress reduction and um, so amazed that someone had actually created a program where I could bring some of these practices into the mainstream. And um, 
So one of the foundational practices in mindfulness-based stress reduction is the body scan. And that was a very familiar practice to me. And it was very, in some ways, it was connected to the third two parts. And so for many years, teaching the mindfulness-based stress reduction body scans, I would also practice um, the 32 parts of the body. And all told up, about 26 years after, I've lived long enough that I can say this, it's kind of funny to say, but 26 years after um, being introduced to the 32 parts of the body, so that's like around 2006, it finally occurred to me, wait, this is a really powerful practice. People should, should know about this. It took me a while. But then again, you might have seen, if you looked on the table, there's this picture in the far side of uh, some cows in a pasture. Cows sit in pastures for a long time. These cows sat in the pasture for a long time. And um, one day, one of these cows has an epiphany. And it starts telling the other cows, Hey, wait a minute. We're eating grass. We're eating grass. Hey, wait a minute. We're eating grass. <laughs> well, in the same way, 26 years later, Wait a minute. we got a body. I got a body. You guys, hey, there's bioflam, pus, blood, sweat, fat. There's body here. And I'm telling you, it was something like that. that that's the closest equivalent from the far side. Like, wait a minute, I got a body. And, and even, I mean, I'm like, kind of like Mr. Duffy, even though I'm living a short distance away from my body. And all of a sudden, I'm just getting, we got a body. And that this is a very powerful practice. It is a strange practice, no doubt. <laughs> it only comes in the times when the Buddhas arise and the truth is that this practice is not really taught anywhere it's kind of gone a little bit extinct and I was very uh, taken with this practice of the body and so, so where this, this practice is found is many, some of you know this is four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha taught these are like key foundations for liberation, for awakening. This is the foundation of the body, the foundation of the feeling tones, foundation of mind states, foundation of the dharmas, and we'll maybe unpack these more later. But in the foundation of the body, there's six distinct practices, and the first is we're already beginning to practice some of these. We're practicing the mindfulness of breathing, that's the first one. The second one is Mindfulness of bodily postures, whether we're standing, walking, sitting, or lying. Being mindful of those. We've given instructions on that. Being mindful of our day-to-day activities, eating, showering, different activities of day-to-day living. That's the third aspect of the, within those six practices in the mindfulness of the body. The other three are the 32 parts of the body meditation, and then this practice on the mindfulness of the elements within the body of solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature that we're going to explore later this week. And then lastly is a very powerful and descriptive practice on the mindfulness of death where there's contemplations on, I'm always, I'm forgetting the number now, I think it's nine, uh, different contemplations on the decomposition of a body beginning with the first day of death until the body turns into dust began to wonder, why would anyone want a meditation like that? But then there's this old saying that, you, that uh, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die and not me, and I've been in that club for many years. 
And I think perhaps like sitting by a body and seeing that it actually does decompose and turn to dust, that will be the final proof for me. That I think I've begun to get that now. But these are the body practices that are found in the first foundation of mindfulness. Very important practices. And yet the 32 parts of the body meditation is, is, is hardly ever practiced. And so... Being with my history with the body scan, the 32 parts began to make more and more sense and I became very inspired to want to, to, to get this more known and practiced. One of the things about this practice that some people have shied away from because there's a few different ways of practicing this meditation. And probably the most known way is one that is a way that may not be very popular for many people. I don't teach it this way. But it's, and actually in the canonical text, when it's practiced in this particular way, there's a very strong language. And it, it's, it's, it's concerning cultivating the repulsive or the loathsome aspects of the body. It's pretty strong words. Loathsome, repulsive, disgusting. Now, we have to understand there may be some history behind a whole bunch of monastics that were filled with a lot of life. And these were practices that helped to calm some of the younger blood. <laughs> and so often this practice gets associated with, oh, who wants to you know, med- meditate on the disgusting, loathsome, uh, repulsive aspects of the body, and particularly many of us as Westerners, we have enough body issues that we don't need to start, like, yeah, let's get really into this now. You know, like, we, we do enough without practicing that. So in some ways, it's got a little bit of a bad rap. However, this is not the only way that this practice is done. It also can be used as an insight meditation practice as it interrelates with the elements to really begin to penetrate into the true nature of the body, which is much more resonant and akin with how I practice it and how I like to teach it and to, to work with it together. Even during the Buddha's time, there's a story of a group of monks that got so grossed out on the negative aspects of the body that there's a story that they all had committed suicide. And then the Buddha had to go and like really straighten them, like, wait a minute, like this is not about... Um, the negation of the body. And when we come back to it, again, the Buddha speaks about within this fathom-long body lies our world. Our thoughts and emotions, the, the, the origin, the cessation, the pathway to freedom. This body is the vehicle that we live inside of to awaken. And so from our perspective in teaching the 32 parts of the body, we want to bring a lot of honoring or acknowledging this vehicle that we live inside of, to hold it with great compassion, but also at the same time holding it with a way that's very sober, if you will, or very clearly seeing. In some ways, this practice can in some ways help to break some of the spell of enchantment with the body, break some of the infatuation with the body, to see it as it really is. And there's an example, um, I'll pick on my lovely, dear, beloved wife, and... um, she gets a good laugh out of this too, but actually, you can see I don't have much hair on my head, but um, so I, I have to deal with no hair. But she, you know, she just deal with her hair, and she goes to the, get her hair done. And 
How many of us have come back after getting our hair done like, I hate it. I don't like it. Can anybody relate to that? Yeah. So when that happens, I, I recite part of the 32 parts of the body. Actually, I'll, I'll read this right now. So when that happens, I say, Jan, head hair. Head hairs are thread-like outgrowths from the skins of mammals, thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. Hair is a protein filament that grows from deep within the dermis. You get the drift? (laughs) Its function is to keep the top of the head protected and for temperature regulation and also protection from ultraviolet light. That's what head hair really is, thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals, hardened cells. And yet we put all of this stuff onto it. And so in the 32 parts of the body, we're going through these different body parts. And, and so I actually consulted four physician friends of mine, medical dictionaries, and we went through every single part. And just to, this, is, this is this definition. This is its function. This is just what it does, independent of whether you like it or not. It's actually a powerful practice in beginning to reveal the egoless nature of things, because, you know, the, the head hair is like, you know, I, I, as much as I try to tell my head hair to stay in my head, and f- it fell out. It didn't listen to me. I didn't have any control over it. So we ask, why these 32 parts? It's a good question. There's many parts that are missing. Many, many, many parts. Why those parts, not other parts? And to be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> and I've, I've looked through the canonical literature, and there is really not much discussion. We don't know. However, what I will say, in reflecting on that question deeply, and also in practicing it very intensively, that I consider these parts to be like ambassadors, portals into the body. And even though all the hundreds of other parts and so forth are not mentioned, any one of those 32 is a portal, is an ambassador into the body. For example, my wife has diabetes. She has to have four shots of insulin every day. And so when we were working with the abdominal region, even though the pancreas is not mentioned, Obviously, since diabetes is a big issue for her, when she went into the abdominal area, the pancreas was coming up big time. And the pancreas is not to be excluded. It's part of it. Again, working with the abdominal organs may trigger and evoke other places within the body. And this practice is wide enough that it includes what is evoked as part of practice. So I want you to understand, even though it's why these parts, I don't know, but they are considered, like to me, ambassadors or portals into the totality of our human experience. Even though the eyes are not mentioned or the genitals are not mentioned or the, you know, whatever, it, what, as we go into the body, the body becomes alive. It begins to show you what's there, physically, mentally, and emotionally. So is that... I hope that's clear. No, but it's an answer. <laughs> I, it, <laughs> it's an answer. I don't claim it to be the right one, but I'll say that this is coming from my own direct experience working with this for many years, and um, it it makes sense to me that it brings me into the body. We may also want to ask why this order... Can I ask one more just quick? Mm -hmm. I guess we can't make our own list. We have one with this list. Well, (laughs) 
Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. For this retreat, though, we'll work with this list. And it doesn't mean that you can't make up your own list. And it, but it certainly doesn't mean that as we work with this list and these other parts that arise within you as you're working with these parts, you go with it and you be with it. And that's your practice, okay? So that you, these are, that's why I'm saying they're ambassadors or portals into wherever it is that you want to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it may not be an association. Sometimes it, it, we don't, it just arises. Like I, I'm, I'm in with my sinews and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm, I'm getting in touch with, with another aspect of my body. It's just evoking body feelings. Yeah, I know. I don't know why. That's what it's called, 32 parts of the body. Um, but that's right. It's, it's not necessarily a part. So we'll just have to let that be. Yeah. Then we'll, we also want to look at the order. Why head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin? That's a very interesting thing. But it's very interesting that the head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin has to do with all of the surface parts that when we look around and when we see each other, what are we seeing? We're seeing head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And it's actually perhaps no coincidence that the cosmetic industry knows about this. And they capitalize on it big time. Actually, a friend of mine, she's a CFO of some corporation, so very skilled in budgets and figuring out data. And so she decided to create an Excel document from the time that she was born till at the time she was 67 years old. And she did a spreadsheet of her anticipation of how much money she has spent on her own head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. (laughs) I got it here. This is the spreadsheet. And her anticipation... Uh, from like, like with head hair, shampoo, conditioners, curling irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, um, salon treatments, body hair, razors, shaving cream, eyebrow work, nails, nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, toothpaste, dental floss, toothbrushes, electronic toothbrush, whiteners, cleanings, fillings, crowns, skin, lotion, moisturizer, cleanser, makeup, Peels, facials, laser work, skin cancer. <laughs> um, a, a lot of money. A couple, <laughs> couple hundred thousand dollars. So, it's very Actually, maybe I'll put that out on the table for you to look at later. <laughs> Spreadsheet. So it's interesting, all of the fuss that goes into, of course, our head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin. This is what we look at. This is our laws of attraction. And there's a lot about head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. And then it gets very interesting that after skin, it begins to peel the layer off into flesh and sinews, or we could say muscles, connective tissue, then bones, bone marrow. So there seems to be some order to some degree. The bone marrow is... is, um, blood is, re- is part of blood formation. And then the next grouping begins with kidneys, which are blood purifiers. And, and then it begins to go into other organs. What's the relationship between feces next to the brain? Well, we'll have to reflect on that. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe the Buddha had a sense of humor. Maybe, you know, you hear the expression, shit for brains. You know, maybe, maybe there's something to it, you know, so... 
Um, anyways, these parts are like portals and ambassadors into the body. To me, one of the most important aspects of this practice is as we sit with ourselves working with these parts, it's what is evoked as we stay with these parts, physically in the body, as we sense and feel into the body. What is evoked there physically, any sensations? What comes up mentally or emotionally? And something may or may not come up mentally, emotionally, but it's being mindful of that field of what arises. An example, uh, a student of ours was practicing and she was contemplating on head hair and sensing into head hair. And, and, and then just quite naturally this moment of, of a memory arose of her stro- stroking her grandmother's hair as her grandmother was dying. That's there inside the body. And so this is what I mean as we stay with the body. Our history is here inside our body. And we begin to work with, like in the practice of mindfulness of Vipassana, we're allowing and we're acknowledging what is arising as we stay with these parts. And, and we don't know what will be evoked. We're, our willingness is to stay with them. We first want to understand the map is like we say them orally, head here, we know it mentally, then we begin to penetrate the color, the shape, the location. These are all just markers to help us to point, to sense and to feel into it. And then to just be present. What, what arises is I stay with head here, or stay with body here, stay with these different organs and what it may perhaps bring me to. This practice of the 32 parts can be both an insight practice as well as it can uh, really amass a lot of concentration. When we're reciting the parts, that is actually a form of a concentration practice. And we can develop, if we wanted with this practice, deep, deep types of absorption with the 32 parts. But equally, we can work with these parts as a deep insight practice that helps to reveal to us this impersonal, impermanent nature of things. Again, as I mentioned, I, I like to teach this from an insight perspective and what is evoked in our body and mind. The benefits of the 32 parts I speak about in the text is that one of the most important benefits is that it helps to break down the erroneous view of self. The egoless nature of these different parts and how that we don't have much control over them. Also, the benefits of amassing concentration. Speaks about when you practice this, you can begin to conquer boredom and fear, dread and delight. Of course, this practice um, can be used in the deepest way of awakening, liberation. And it also can be used, and a number of people have used in the literature, speaks about this as a practice that can be used for healing. And actually, a very dear friend of mine, Barbara, um, when she first came to the monastery many years ago, when I was living there, had uh, um, advanced cancer with under a year to live. And the monks really took a connection with her and taught her the 32 parts of the body and she began to practice specifically in the area of the lungs and uh, for the next six years she wrote a postcard to her oncologist with just three words still here Barbara (laughs) 
And she really swore that, that, the, that this practice was what was helping her. Hard to, of course, know whether that was or not, uh, but something really quite miraculous happened in the sense that she was given a, a terminal prognosis of under one year to live. And um, unfortunately, the cancer did come back and she did die of it. But along the way, I think working with this practice not only brought about in some sense some working with her illness, but I think on the deeper sense, the, the, like a deeper healing of her heart, even as she faced her death. And she actually wrote this poem just um, a short time before her death. She sent this to me. It's called Of Life and Death. Barbara writes, it's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death, but broken free from the stranglehold of fear. At Christmas, we celebrate the wonders of birth. At Easter, the miracle of rebirth. What then of death? Without death, death enfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn by the light. Barbara Roberts. So when we go through these parts starting tomorrow we're going to offer some definitions, some brief definitions and functions and just help point a little bit, but we don't want to talk so much during the meditation. And so, but we're going to begin to dive into these parts in two of the sittings in the morning and the first sitting in the afternoon. And then we'll have it cushioned by some silence as well. We actually made, and there's enough here for everyone, and what I'll do is I'll put this on the table. I actually have the definitions, the functions, the color, shape, direction, location, delimitation of all of the body parts. And I'm going to um, leave this on the table for you because this might be actually a very helpful resource. So in regards to the body, one of the most revered and fiercest, wisest Thai forest masters of the last century. He was actually the, one of the teachers of Achan Cha. And his name was called Achan Mun. And he says that in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature. See the elements, the difficulties, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world become clear. And in this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. Achanmun. Very beautiful. So, I mentioned earlier, and this will maybe be my um, closing thing because I'm realizing our time is here. Even though I have a lot more to say, I'll wait for another day. So, this is by um, 
Wendy Yen, who is a poet in Santa Cruz, and she's a Zen poet, and somehow she got the list of the 32 parts, and, and so she, she decided to make her own list. <laughs> she calls it the 110 functions of the body. So I'll offer this to you. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing, hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, propriocepting, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. (laughs) 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 The body. We got a body. We have a body. We have a body. Okay, one more. This is your good night your good night story from Dr. Seuss. <laughs> I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too, games you can't win because you'll play against you. All alone, whether you like it or not, alone you will be something quite a lot. And when you're alone, there's a very good chance you'll meet some things that might scare you right out of your pants. There are some down the road between hither and yon that can scare you so much you won't want to go on. But on you will go. Though the weather be foul, on you will go, though the hacking cracks howl. Onward up many a frightening creek, though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak, on and on you will hike. And I know you will hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. You'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure where you step. Step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. Just never forget to be dexterous and deft and never mix up your right foot with your left. (laughs) So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.